all. If you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm 150. Well, it's a joy to be here, and it is a joy to come to Psalm 150 after six and a half years, um, and to consider how the Psalter ends. And to be honest with you, as I walked through this, there was somewhat, in my own experience, just this surprising reality of, I think, even how providentially the Lord has structured uh, this altar in uh, being concluded in this way, and we'll get to that towards the end, but I'm, I'm so thankful. As we consider what we've walked through um, in these 150 psalms, uh, it, it really is, some people would look at this altar and I think incorrectly interpret them in a way that just heap new or different imperatives on uh, the people of God, but what the Psalms really, one of the things that I've learned is the Psalter is, it stands uh, as an expression of what it is to live in light of the salvation that has been given to us by grace alone. It gives us shoe leather to how we are to relate to and respond to God. And, and the height of wisdom for an individual who has been saved in contradiction to everything that they are, is that we come and we worship the triune God. That in a world that is fallen and so disordered um, and so chaotic, and you know one of the interesting things I think just as I'm thinking about it now about the Word of God itself is some people will say, well, the Bible is just so hard to interpret. Because we come to certain passages in Scripture, and we even come to certain passages in the Psalter, that seemingly, oh, they just don't fit in this narrative that we have in our own minds of who God is and how He, he works. But all of that just goes to show not how disordered God is, but how disordered this world really is. Uh, and yet, in the midst of that disordered world, we are called here in this psalm in particular to praise God. That is wisdom, to live a life praising God. C.S. Lewis refers to the exuberant quality of Jewish worship as an appetite for God. And he rejects the phrase in his writing of having a love for God because that is too restrictive. And he writes this, he says, it has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even a physical desire. It is happy and jocular. They are glad and they rejoice. Their fingers itch the harp, for the lute and the harp wake up, lute and harp. Let's have a song. Bring the tambourine. Bring the merry harp and the lute. We're going to sing merrily and to make a cheerful noise. Noise you may well say, mere music is not enough. Let everyone, even the, even the beleaguered Gentiles, clap their hands. Let us have clashing cymbals. 
Not only well-tuned, but loud and dances too. I think what this tells us is that as a church, we should be done with worship that is unexciting. Uh, We should be done with worship that is not aimed at the glory of the triune God. Uh, We should be a people that when we gather, and people come in among our midst, they are kind of taken aback at how, not how, uh, listen, not what's coming from the stage. There's a lot of production that can be made. But, but people should walk in and go, did you see how excited those people were? Something had to have happened to them to make them this excited. Now, there is something distinct about their gathering and how they praise their God. We are called, beloved, to worship in spirit and in truth. So again, we come here tonight to the Psalter's last psalm, and Psalm 150 is, is ultimately this climax of the collection of these last five praise psalms. Psalm 146 uh, is an, in Psalm 146, an individual Israelite praises God for his grace, power, and faithfulness to the needy. In Psalm 147, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are urged to praise God for their regathering, their blessing, their security in the following of the exile. In Psalm 148, all creatures in heaven and on earth are told to praise God as their Creator and as the Redeemer of His people. And in Psalm 149 that we were in last week, we are told and invited to praise God since, the, since we are saved from our enemies and we can look forward to the final judgment without fear and trepidation. And here in Psalm 150, every creature that has breath is exhorted to praise God everywhere with any means that is available. And we are called to do that loudly. There's a lot of music in our day and age that is just repetitive for no purpose. And the real problem isn't the repetition. And I'm going to illustrate that in a second. The real problem with most modern worship isn't just that it's repetitious, although repetition not well-rooted should cause us to question. Uh, The real issue is that the repetition doesn't lead anywhere. It's just repetition for repetition's sake. It's just to make noise to stir us. But ultimately, it doesn't go anywhere. How many of you have heard the Hallelujah Chorus? And I know I've used this as an illustration, but most of us have heard that. And if we were to listen to that and then have a discussion with someone about the repetition in modern music, they might say, well, Handel's Messiah has repetition in it as well. But really, that's not musically so. If you listen to the, to the Hallelujah Chorus in that piece of, uh, of music, what you will find is that there is a, a, an upward movement musically of singing Hallelujah. And there is a musical emphasis that is seeking to raise our affections and it is aimed at the living God. And that is what all of our worship should do. Our worship should not point back to us. That's what sin does. Our worship should aim our hearts, 
our affections, our thoughts to the triune God. This psalm says, praise the Lord three times. It says, praise God once and praise Him nine times. Leopold says of uh, these last songs, the note of praise swells out more and more strongly towards the close of the book. Finally, to break out into this crescendo which is full-toned and jubilant. There is nothing more magnificent, I think, than Psalm 150. Alexander McLaren writes correctly, this uh, psalm is more than an artistic close of the Psalter. It is probably of the last result. It is the result of a devout life and in its unclouded sunniness, as well as its universality, it proclaims the certain end of the weary years for an individual who has lived the life of faith in the world. Everything, the psalmist says, that has breath, every creature and every fiber of our being, if we are living in light of who the living God really is, Everyone will praise the Lord. So with that in mind, if you would stand as we read Psalm 150 together tonight. The psalmist here writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with a trumpet sound. Praise Him with a lute and the harp. Praise Him with a tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing of cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence tonight so thankful that we've been able to walk through these psalms these many years. So thankful that you have called us according to your purpose. That you've called us to glorify and to magnify you. But you've not called us to do that ignorantly. You've shown us who you are in your character throughout these psalms. You've revealed to us Your kindness. You have demonstrated that You care for Your saints. You have shown the historical reality of redemption. You have brought wonders to bear on our souls through these pages that are absolutely incalculable. And we are thankful. Father, we confess tonight that often we don't live lives that meet the bar of Psalm 150. So would you stir in us afresh and anew a desire to worship you rightly in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first question that we ask of this psalm that this psalm answers is where should everything that has breath Praise God. And the first verse gives us a comprehensive answer. It it is in His sanctuary and in His mighty heavens. Now there is this debate about what is meant by those juxtaposed phrases. And there are some who would contend that that first declaration, praise God in His sanctuary, that that sanctuary is the 
uh, my, that, that is uh, his throne room in the heavens. But the interesting, I think, and more compelling argument is that as we get to verses 3 through 5, there are all of these earthly uh, instruments that are included in this psalm. So I believe what is really going on here is that uh, there is the picture of the temple worship, the gathering of the people of Israel to worship God, and we should praise Him in that sanctuary here on earth. And then he goes on, juxtaposing that to the mighty heavens. I think that what is being aimed at here is that we should praise God everywhere. Now today we know that we don't have the same kind of Old Testament sanctuary with its sacrificial system and all of that. Uh, We worship and praise God as temples of the living God. We are the sanctuary in some sense. And yet, I think what the psalmist is aiming at here is encouraging the people who will follow God all throughout human history that we are to praise God in no specific place, but in every place. That that every corner of this globe should be filled with the praises of God. And I think I've shared this with you before, but one of my favorite John Piper quotes is that missions exist because worship does not. The reason that we are engaged in missions at Life Point Baptist Church in the year 2023 isn't for decisions. Isn't that interesting? And yet, so many, I remember when I first got to Life Point 10 years ago, one of the first pastor's meetings that I went to in, I think it was in Snyder, Texas, there was a church that I went into, and the entire conversation was that the whole reason that we engage in missions is so that we can count the decisions that are made for Jesus. And there was even a, a plaque at the front of the, the, the sanctuary, the, the church building, that had a number. That was, it was enormous uh, of all of the reported through prayer letters decisions that had been made through the giving. And, you know, of course, I think that there, there's, a, there's a right motive and desire to see people come to Christ. But that's not really the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason that we do missions is because brothers and sisters, our neighbors apart from God do not worship rightly. And so, it is our joy to be engaged in the work of missions that we would spread the fame of God's glory throughout the entire universe that, that, friends, one day there's not going to be There's not going to be a single inch of creation that is not inhabited by the glory of God to His praise. Isn't that fantastic? And if you want to talk about a a, a way to transform the world, that's it. And interestingly enough, it is God and God alone who is doing the work to make His name known. And so the second question is, why? Why? Do we praise God? Just as in His sanctuary and in His mighty heavens means that God is to be praised everywhere, so do the phrases of verse 2 embrace everything for which God should be praised. God's mighty deeds here refer primarily to His works in creation and salvific redemptive history. Um, What some theologians would call His creation, His providential, that is His governing over uh, all of 
uh, the earth and his redemptive works. His mighty deeds are that he has created the world, he has ruled over the world and is to this very second, and that he is bringing about redemption through his kindness. And the second part here, the excellent greatness, refers to the attributes of God. This would be a great place, Dallas, for me to stop and spend another eight weeks in Psalm 150 so I could live up to what you said. Uh, And just uh, let's go. Thank you for the invitation. Anyway, um, but but here, what what he's talking about, his excellent greatness is who he is, his sovereignty, his holiness, his omniscience, his immutability, his love, grace, goodness, compassion, justice, truth, and wisdom. God is to be then praised both for who he is and what he has done. That is why we worship. Boy, that changes our entire way of thinking when we come here on Sunday morning because we're not as, we're not as, as concerned with the arrangement of the music. Now, I'm not making an argument that we shouldn't do music in an excellent fashion, but what I'm saying is that the primary focus in worship is not the stirring of our affections by the musical instrumentation. Friends, if we get here on a Sunday morning and we desire that someone on the stage give us the reason to sing, we have missed the point of all of Scripture. Because our worship is not fueled by those things. Our worship is, is, is fueled by the reality of who God is and what He has done for us. Friends, these psalms have been so encouraging because I, I don't know about you, when I was, I, I think I've shared this with you, maybe you haven't heard this, but six and a half years ago, as a young guy, I was told you should, every young pastor should preach all the way through the Psalter. It'll change you for the better. It'll, it'll give you glimpses of God that you've never seen before. And I got a couple of years ago to about Psalm 75, and I told the person that his name's Stephen Lawson that, that encouraged me that we were about halfway through, and his response is, oh, you're really doing it, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, brother. I didn't think that was hyperbolic, your encouragement. But the outworking hasn't been hyperbolic at all. It's been felt. Um, I know God differently because of His words, because of how He has revealed Himself to interact with His people throughout redemptive history. The, The way in which I understand the triune God is different because of these 150 psalms. And so why praise God? Because of who He is and what He has done. Not only in our own lives, but throughout history. And the longest section, I think, then here in this psalm is we are given instructions in how to praise God. After telling us where to praise God in verse 1 and then reminding us why we should praise God in verse 2, again, because of who He is and what He has done, the, the next three verses... One half of this psalm tell us how God is to be praised. And so the question, how should we praise God? And you know what the the striking answer from these three verses is? With everything that we have. With all that we are. 
with everything that God gives us. If you have a trumpet, use that. If you have a lyre, use that. If you have a tambourine, a stringed instrument, a flute, cymbals, use them. If God has given you a raspy voice that nobody would ever want to listen to, use it for the glory of God. That is my license to sing on Sunday morning, to be honest with you. I remember, some of you will remember Jorge, a brother here that was a music pastor, and often when we would get to the office early on, and I would tell him, brother, that leading of worship on Sunday was such an encouragement. Thank you. And he would say something to the effect of, oh, I could hear you. And I always knew by how he said that, that he was glad I was excited about who the Lord was. He was not giving me an invitation to participate on the stage. That's never the point. The point is that we are to use everything that we are in exalting God because He is infinitely worth our worship. Friends, I can remember as a young person uh, coming into the congregation of the people of God and, and thinking as we were singing, to my shame, I, I don't want to sing too loudly because I don't want to embarrass myself. Uh, and, and molding my worship... Uh, in my young understanding because of the people that were around me. Friends, I don't think that we should be obnoxious with our voices, and that's not what I'm saying. Uh, We should, though, ultimately not be concerned with the person next to us. First and primarily, we should be concerned with the reality that there is an infinite God who has poured out upon His people infinite grace, and He is due infinite worship. What a joy it is to worship Him with everything that we are. It's interesting that the trumpets here that are blown, um, which is a shofar, uh, a horn, uh, makes a really loud sound, would would have been used by the priests. The harps and the lyres, um, they were played by the Levites. The tambourines were played by women and other people. And so the call to praise God is addressed to the priests, to the Levites, to all of the people. Everyone is to worship God. There is no room in the economy of God's Word for an obstinate church member who refuses to engage in praise towards God. It's not there. Let everyone who has whatever your ability is, praise Him with that. Now, there are two extreme, I think, historically speaking, and this will allow us to get into a little bit of the discussion of the worship wars as we leave Psalm 150. Never, never one to shy away from a little bit of controversy. Um, there are two extreme camps uh, of opinions, and these are probably over generalizations because as people were complex and and the way that we approach worship uh, musically is complex, but there are two extreme opinions, uh, I think, regarding instruments and the way that we should worship. There are those who forbid the use of instruments in worship altogether. And I can remember as a young person growing up in a little hick town in the middle of Missouri um, over the summers, the thing that I looked forward to more than anything else was that all of the churches in town would have vacation Bible school, and so I would hop from one to the next to the next to the next. Um, And you would get to the Church of Christ in particular, I could remember, and boy, their way of doing worship was just different. 
what is going on here? And it dawned on me at one point, well, there's no instrumentation here. And I really never understood why that was until later on. And really, it is rooted in uh, what is called the regulative principle. And some of you have heard of the regulative principle, and that is this idea that everything about the way that we come to worship God should have a biblical warrant. That, that we don't come before the triune God to praise Him and do it with our own creativity uh, and our own ideas first and primarily. Now we can use our creativity, but we, we ultimately have to find in Scripture a warrant for what we do when we gather together because the uh, regulative principle would say that God ultimately is the one that can tell us uh, alone how to rightly worship Him. It means that God sets the terms and the means by which we are to worship. This same kind of thinking creeps in uh, in churches where uh, they believe in exclusive solemnity. That is, that no uh, words apart from the Psalter should be sung inside the congregation. I had a brother recently in a class that I was taking, uh, and I began to talk about the regulative principle because I actually agree with it. Uh, not in these applications, but I agree with the principle. And he said, ooh, I have seen the regulative principle used in a way that I don't think glorifies God. And I said, really? And he actually said, and I'm not making a judgment here, but his response was, yeah, I grew up in the church of Christ, and that principle, I never heard it called that, but it was used in a way just to push things to the side that I really don't think we can say they don't have a biblical warrant. They were just preferences. And so I want us to be mindful of that. Yes, there are people that say no instrumentation. There are people that say ultimately we only do what the Bible says. And then what they do with that, what they do is they use a good principle. It is a good thing that we are as biblical as we can be. It is a good thing that we apply the Word of God to everything that we do for the glory of God. But here's my question. How do you come to Psalm 150 and say we should have no instrumentation? Now, here is how they would answer that question. They would say that, well, Jay, you're reading from the Old Testament. And because you're in the Old Testament passage, and because there you see the sanctuary, and what was going on in the sanctuary were um, sacrifices, and the instrumentation would have been used during the times when the sacrifices were offered, and only during those times, Now, since those sacrificial systems have been done away with, so we also have to put away all of those instruments. That is a really poor argument. It's a poor argument because how do we know that there were never usages of, and quite frankly, I think this psalm really uh, is indicative of the exact opposite. That we are to praise in every place and at every time And to exalt God for what He has done, not only in this sanctuary, but in our homes. And so this whole kind of using the regulative principle in this way, um, I I think, misses the mark. And I dealt with last week 
in Psalm 149, singing a new song is an explicit command. And I think that that gives us warrant that as long as the the lyrics that we are singing find a biblical warrant, we are free to sing songs that hymnists have written throughout church history and even modern ones. Some, some people, though, will ultimately reject all of that thinking and say, no, no instrumentation, no, um, no hymns, nothing outside. And, and here's what I'm going to say to all of that. Ultimately, each individual has to, to come to their own conviction. My firm conviction is, yes, re- regulative principle, but we cannot misapply that uh, in a way that, that, that ignores entire swaths of the Psalter. So then secondly, there are the, the other group. So the first group is those who would forbid the use, use of instruments and forbid any kind of hymns. I'm just going to say this. Could you imagine coming to church and not being able to sing Amazing Grace with one another? That was a fantastic hymn. Broadly misunderstood, because I think, you know, I mean, Methodists sing it, so they should sing, like, not amazing grace, but kind of good grace that, anyway, that's a whole theological argument. But we get, we believe in, we believe in the grace of Almighty God. We believe that God saves us by a divine act of mercy alone as the Spirit of God moves upon us so we can sing that God's grace is amazing. We can have a difference of uh, opinion about how to apply the regulative principles, certainly. But I dare you to try to keep me from singing Amazing Grace. Or A Mighty Fortress is our God. Or I, I'll be careful because I'll get excited and then break out in a song and you guys will run out of here. Um, but then the second group would be those who would say everything, everything is ultimately then up for grabs. There are Christians who would argue, argue uh, based off of some of the, the, the things that I've just said, that anything has a warrant as long as we feel that it, it brings praise to God. But I think we need to stop for a moment and, and really question, um, what do we really think about that? Does anything have a place in the gathered worship of the saints. And here's what I would encourage. Not all music promotes worship of God. Because not all music... And listen, I had a, I, I probably I know that in 150 Psalms I've said this... So forgive me, but I had a, a young man, I had a lot of young guys when I was going through my undergrad program at Baptist Bible College that worked for me as security guards. And there was a broad array of musical preferences. I had one young man in particular that I dearly love to this day. And he was so enthralled by something called Christian screamo. Now some of you are going, what is that? It literally, and then there's a, a subset genre of that that's called... Now, pig screamo, which literally sounds like I grew up close to pig farms. It sounds exactly as it says. It's just screaming lyrics. 
Well, friends, I would argue, I would contend that that is, and I had this whole conversation with this young man. In fact, he was working for me, and one night I was walking outside of the school, and I could just hear it sounded like a whole herd of hogs was being tormented. And so I walked over, and I said, Billy, what are you doing? He's like, hey, man, I'm just listening to my music. And I'm like, that's great. Do that when I'm not paying you. I don't want to hear that guy. And it's not to have a curmudgeon-type attitude, but friends, there are things that maybe privately, individually, cause you, and I'm not going to argue subjectively around those things. I think it's foolish to get into those arguments. But when we gather corporately, there is no doubt that there are some genres of music that do not lend themselves, again, to bringing our praises to God. The question is not, how do I feel about it? The question is, what does this do to my cognitive thinking? Does it bring my mind and my heart before the triune living God that has uh, uh, cherubim and seraphim surrounding Him, crying out that He is thrice holy? And if the music doesn't meet that mark, it is not really leading us in a spirit of worship. I think one of the ways, now here, here's an interesting there's a, an entire argument and debate, and I don't know that I necessarily want to get into it, but uh, about whether or not we should applaud in church services. And I, the answer that I have to that is much the same as, uh, as particular genres of music. What are you clapping for? What are you applauding? Because if you're applauding what's going on on the stage, then it's not worship, it's entertainment. If you are using a colloquial expression which applause is for all of us. We have grown up and used to that. And you are excited about what the Lord has done. Maybe then it's appropriate. I think there's a whole debate to have there. But here is the the solid point. Not everything causes our hearts to rise to the level of focusing on the living God. And so friends, this is ultimately the way that works out. We should not accept in this place for worship anything that takes our gaze away from the triune living God. We should not settle for low versions of worship. There's a pastor. His name is Roy Clements. Uh, He's an English Baptist pastor. And he says, it simply won't do to come and do my own musical thing in church and call that praise. And he offers, I think, this helpfully. He says, all too often, the pop singer, the beat guitarist, and the jazz drummer of today are idols. And Christian groups can be infected with the same kind of worldly pride. The applause and admiration of others can quickly become an intoxicating drug that mars those who want to stand up and sing for Jesus. Worship in music has to begin and end with hallelujah, with praise the Lord. And for that reason... It is not the professionalism of the performance that counts, though it is right to do our best. It is not the genius of the composition or the profundity of the words that matter. Because if it was the case, uh, if, if it was the case that 
tambourine would be a bit limited, wouldn't he? No, it is the intended audience that counts. It is the one whom we are intending to see glorified in what we are doing that determines whether music is real music in praise to God or not. It is the one who consumes our worship, God alone, that counts in determining what is real worship. And so when we come and we ask that the Lord would receive our worship, that is no trite and trivial thing. We should praise God everywhere and at all times. We should praise Him with all that we have exuberantly. But we should do it in a way that is not stoic and indifferent, but also that it doesn't ultimately imbibe all of the philosophies of the world. And friends, I have grown up in, in the time where we're working through so much of this, and I do believe in so many places, we are, we are calling things worship that aren't worship. And, and I would just say this too. I have shared with you my heart about catechisms and how I think they're helpful. Uh, that is kind of question and answers about what the Scriptures teach. Do you know what I think catechizes our kids in this gen... And I wouldn't just limit it to kids. It's adults too. Do you know what catechizes our churches more than anything else? Caleb. All of the modern uh, worship scene. All of the modern so-called Christian music. And here's what's crazy. Is do you know that most of the people that are writing the lyrics and who are singing the songs... Now, there are good. I don't want us to just be skeptics and, and, do, and, and take what I'm saying as like we can be curmudgeons towards modern music. God has called us to sing fresh music and so... Praise God that there are musically gifted people. But it's interesting to me how often these Christian pop stars will spend a decade of their lives performing for the church, so-called, and all the while there are people who have theological bents, elders in the church, who are pointing out the dangerous inconsistencies with the lyrics. And what happens is generally uh, Christians at large, will just say, stop being so heady and brainy. Stop worrying about all of that. And then, lo and behold, ten years later, these people come out and, and espouse completely heretical positions. Why? Because we're going to low worldly music for truth. That is dangerous. Not only leads us away from biblical worship, it leads us away from biblical doctrine. And ultimately, living lives apart from biblical doctrine is a very dangerous thing. So then the question is, who should praise? Who should praise God? And the final answer that Psalm 150 gives to the question you or my, I might have about worship is to tell us who should praise God. And the answer is as comprehensive as those given to each of the other questions. The first question, where should we praise God? The answer, everywhere in heaven and on earth. The second question, why should we praise God? Because everything, uh, everything that God is and everything that He has done. And the third question, how should we praise God? And the answer, with everything that we have. Now, at the last question of the four, who should praise God? And the answer here is everything and everybody. Everything that has breath, the psalmist says, should praise the Lord. 
And this is exactly what the Bible says will happen one day. At the moment that we see, uh, at, at this particular moment, we see God insulted, blasphemed, denied, ignored, mocked, ridiculed. We see Christ rejected. I talked on Sunday about uh, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12, and the question that is posed there to, uh, to us by the lamenter Jeremiah as he says, does this not matter to you? All of my suffering, have you seen suffering like mine? And as we apply that to Jesus and, and we realize that the sufferings of Christ don't matter to the world, that is a reality, but there is a far greater reality that we all know as believers and that we're taught here. And that is, uh, in accordance with uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, that one day every knee will bow, willingly or by constraint, and everyone will give praise to God for who He is and what He has done. We remember what John wrote in the book of the Revelation. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's going to be a great day. What a wonderful thing to contemplate. The praises of God that in eternity, what will consume our worship is not melody, but is the majesty of the One who is magnificent and who has done everything to redeem our sinful souls. What a joy it is if we have placed our faith in the Lamb of God, to know that the One whom our soul values more than anyone will receive the praise that He is due eternally. Friends, no matter the suffering that we experience in this life, no matter the difficulty that befalls our particular congregation, we live in light of a Psalter and in light of a Bible that declares this great truth. Our redemption has been accomplished in Christ and He will receive the glory that is due His name. We live in a day and age, and we dealt with this in the Psalter not too long ago, that we live in a, a society that is so consumed with justice. But can I encourage you that we're consumed with lesser justice. We're consumed with everything needing to be right in our own particular lives according to our own particular preferences. But the more that we grow in Christ and the more that we begin to know who He is, the more we realize the real deficiency of this life is not in what has happened to us, but the glory that has been robbed from Him. And one day, friends... We are all going to live lives eternally. But I used to wonder, and I still do in some respects, my brain can't get wrapped around this. But I would hear old-timey Southern Baptist preachers in my little hometown talk about that Jesus came, that you could have life and that more abundantly. And then I would listen to the, the, the preachers from the Pentecostal group talk about the abundant life, and I figured out you know, in my teen years that that meant a Ferrari and a really good-looking woman in their theological system, and in a thousand other theological systems, it means other things. And if we're not careful in our Reformed circles, we can begin to think that the abundant life is that we have all of the theological answers. 
That's not the abundant life. The abundant life, beloved, is to live in the face of suffering and of loss and of ridicule and of pain and to continue to praise God for what He has done for our dead and dying souls. That's the abundant life. It may be brutal here. There it will be glorious. It'll be a genuine joy. You know, when we get to the end of a thing that we really love, uh, I drive my wife nuts with Spotify. There's a little button on my Spotify account and the, 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 the twanging country songs that I grew up with from the 80s and 90s that I love. Y'all, country music that happened after the year 2000, I don't know what happened on this planet, but it was really a hard fall. So awful. There's a little button uh, that you repeat. You get to the end and you go right back to the beginning. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to preach through the Psalter all over again. Yet. But I do want you to turn in your Bible to where we began six years ago. And I want you to see something that is glorious. If we really are going to live lives that all that we are and in every place that we are and with all that we have uh, really brings honor and glory to Him, if we really are going to praise the Lord, if our lives are going to be... Listen, friends, we should aim to live our lives in such a way that when people remember who we were, the closest thing that they can think of is hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That is an individual who lived their life for the praise and glory of God. And do you know where that life begins? Where Psalm 150 begins is in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sets in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. We cannot praise God without meditating on his word. For we will only praise God as we come to actually know him. And we can only know him in light of his Word. And it really works the other way too. And, and we can't miss seeing this. The, 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 the book we have been studying begins with a Bible study and it ends in praise. Isn't that a joy? That the Psalter that tells us how we are to worship gives us biblical warrant that when the, the Christian contemporary artist says don't be so worried about theology we can say psalm 1 verses 1 and 2 i will meditate on who the living god is and i will not merely express the emotions that i have i will praise him for who he actually is and what he has done and friends i just believe this 
The reason why so many people struggle with seeing that theology is glorious is because humans have turned it into something that is boring. But when we really grow in our knowledge of who the living God is, Psalm 150 is the natural outflow. Our theology, beloved, will always lead to doxology. We will always, as we grow... And and friends, here's the... Here's the reality. The reason why, and, and by this point, I think you all know that I'm a, 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 a nut for Reformation theology. Why? Because there in the, the, the dark ages, and I believe we just have a different kind of dark age today. We're overloaded with information. We don't know how to synthesize it. And so the church is trying to do everything that men want. Uh, I told somebody recently, we have switched what happened in the Reformation, the magisterium of a few, that is the Catholic Church lording over the church, to the magisterium of the pew, that now whatever the congregation thinks just goes. No, ultimately what the Reformers knew was right is we put the Word of God back at the center of the gathering of the saints. And you know what flows out of that? Lives that have hallelujah written across them. Praise the Lord. Might we always aim not at knowing God and right theology so that we look smarter or right, but might we always pursue right doctrine so that we can see the glory of God and give Him the praise that He is due. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence tonight acknowledging how magnificent you are and how meager our worship is. Father, we come tonight somewhat brokenhearted at Don Butts' passing. So thankful that there is a Christian, godly gentleman who praised the Lord in so many areas of his life. So thankful that we were able to know him. Father, I pray that you would comfort his family I'm so thankful for the encouragement of knowing that he's living out with his precious wife these realities of Psalm 150 at this very moment. I pray, Father, that we would be a vessel of mercy to the Butts family in the days ahead. And Father, I do ask that you would continue to stir in our hearts a desire to know you in accordance with your word in this place. Might young and old come here not to be merely stirred emotionally, but might this be a sanctified space where Your Word is declared and Your praise is sung for Your glory. Father, You are wonderful in all that You are and in all that You have done. And we come tonight confessing the reality that far too often we have withheld praise that You are due. Let us be free from the tyranny of that sinful mindset. And let us praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise and let's sing, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to rest. 